Well, you know, here's, here's one thing that we are good at, and I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just talking about all of us. We are really good at messing things up, aren't we? You know, come on, aren't we? We're really good at that. And, and here's what I figured out. It's not that we're stupid. We just do stupid things. All right? You with me? Sometimes we just do dumb things and, uh, and, and we, mess, we mess up. But I want you to see my heart this morning. Because you may be one of the people who are here today and your life is messed up. Sometimes we do things to cause that mess ourselves. Other times we just find ourselves in a big mess. And it's our life or our family or the people that we love whose lives are broken. Well, I've got good news today. God has a tool that can fix your broken world. And we're going to look at that this morning. In the late 1800s, a young man named Robert Thomas left his homeland of Wales with his young bride to set sail for China to be a missionary. Soon God would move on his heart that the gospel needed to be taken to the nation of Korea, a land that had for many years been closed to any outside influence, including missionaries. And so young Thomas began to feel the burden, and he knew that the Word of God would have an impact on that land. And so with his young bride, he sailed on an American naval ship up a river to a port in North Korea. He took a few Bibles with him, and as he went on shore, he started passing those Bibles out to the people who had gathered there. After giving out all of his Bibles, he was immediately executed. He was only 27 years old. The soldier who ordered Thomas's execution took one of those Bibles home with him, not to read it, but to tear out every single page and plaster those pages on the inside walls of his home to insulate his home. After that, he sold the house to another Korean man who started reading his walls. <laughs> He read every wall, every page on every wall, the Bible that was plastered there. And because he read the Word of God, which is alive and quick and powerful, it reached out and grabbed this man's life and heart, changed him, and he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior and was a changed creation in Jesus Christ. Sometime after that, that house itself became a church and that simple event was a part of a great spiritual awakening that spread through Korea in the 1900s. Folks, listen to me. There is power in God's Word. One page. One verse. One word can change a person's life. And it's my prayer that God would use his word, this instrument to bring healing to your life today. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 1. We're in a series that I'm calling Rebuilding Your Broken World, and we're learning how to do that from this book of the Old Testament, Ezra. The greatest catalyst for rebuilding our broken world is the Word of God. The work that God does to rebuild our broken lives is by the Spirit of God 
who applies the written Word of God into our heart. We've been following the adventures of the Jews who had returned to their homeland to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and more importantly, the temple of God. But now in chapter 7, there is about to be a great infusion of the life-changing power of the Word of God through a single man whose name is Ezra. Now, this book we've been studying is named after Ezra, but the fact of the matter is, he doesn't show up until about a hundred years after that pagan king, Cyrus of Persia, allowed God's people to go back home and rebuild their broken world. So here we are in Ezra chapter 7, and Ezra finally shows up on the scene. Verse 1 of that chapter says, After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes. Now after these things signals to us that it's been about 60 years since the events of Ezra chapter 6, which we studied last week, have passed. And if you remember, last week in Ezra chapter 6, we read about the children of God finishing the temple. They finally finished rebuilding the house of God. Most of the people were rejoicing with great joy. There were a few of the old timers who were weeping over it, but most people were rejoicing. There was a great celebration, and for the first time in many years, they worshiped God in the new temple. Well, 60 years have passed and we come to chapter 7. What has happened during this interval is that a beautiful woman by the name of Esther becomes the queen of King Xerxes, the king of Persia. And then following that, King Artaxerxes rules in Persia and he assists both Ezra and Nehemiah. During this period, the excitement surrounding the rebuilding of God's temple has waned. And while the temple itself has been rebuilt, the worship of the people of God had not been rebuilt. They were satisfied with this kind of mediocre relationship with God. And there was even compromise in their relationship with pagan nations and neighbors. So, here we are in chapter 7. The temple has been rebuilt. But the greatest rebuilding that needed to happen was the rebuilding of the lives of the people of God. And that's where our good friend Ezra comes in. Now, let me do a little quick time out here and just say to you, I tell you what, I sure am grateful for the buildings that God has given us here at 2825 Grinnell. I'm thankful for the facility that we have. And I tell you what, I look forward to the day when we can build a new worship service to reach more people for Christ. I'm really thankful, though, for what God has given us. But, church, listen to me. We must never forget that our greatest work is not in building buildings. Our greatest work is in building lives. So that's what God has called us to. Now, what happens here through the end of the book is that a great reformation or revival takes place. And the pattern of Christian history is that wherever reformation takes place, people begin to rebuild their lives. And they rebuild their lives on the written Word of God. They do it by the book. And I love that phrase. 
Because if your life is messed up today and your world is broken, it must be rebuilt. And the only way to do that is rebuilding it by the book that is the Word of God. Now Martin Luther was the great reformer of the 1500s. One time he penned these words. I have made a covenant with God that He send me neither visions nor dreams nor angels, for I am satisfied with the gift of the Holy Scriptures, which give me abundant instruction in all that I need to know, not only for this life, but for the life to come. Now that is an amen statement right there, because generally speaking, most of us want the dreams, visions, and angels, don't we? We have failed to realize that we have everything we need to live a blessed, abundant, fruitful, and powerful life. And that is God's Word. Now, in the verses that follow here in chapter 7, specifically verses 1 through 5, it shows us and tells us about the godly heritage that Ezra brings with him. His spiritual pedigree is outlined for us. His great-grandfather was Hilkiah. And it was Hilkiah, the high priest, who discovered the Bible, that is, the book of the law, buried under a bunch of junk in the temple during the days of King Joash. And that discovery alone led to a great national revival that God used to bless His people. But as you scan down through verses 2 through 4, you see several names that you're really not familiar with, that you can't really pronounce until you come to verse number 5. On down the, the tree of His heritage. We, we recognize a few of these names in verse 5. It says, He was the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Now get this, Ezra is a descendant of the very first high priest, Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. I know not all of Ezra's ancestors are listed here in verses 1 through 5, but enough of them are listed to let us know that Ezra has a godly heritage that he brings to this task of rebuilding. There were great men and women in his family along the way who kept passing the faith down to the next generation. What a great heritage Ezra had. And it begs me to ask you the question, church, this morning. Are we, are you, raising up young Ezra's and young Esther's today? I mean, really, are we passing the faith down to the next generation? If we don't do it, who will? And church, let me tell you, one of the greatest tasks that we have is to pass the faith down to our kids and our grandkids. We must do that. And so we read about his godly heritage. And then in verse 6, it, it, it kind of pinpoints this man Ezra and talks about him. That's where I want to kick in and read from the New King James Version. Chapter 7, verse 6, it says, This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe, and the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God that was upon him. I want you to take note of that because we read that phrase again in verse 9, that the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 7, 
Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nephinim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So here comes Ezra from Babylon back to Jerusalem. He makes his way to the rebuilding project and his greatest tool that he carries with him is the Word of God. i got some questions for you. If God has been orchestrating all of these events in the book of Ezra, and we know that He has because we've said that repeatedly, if God moved on the heart of King Cyrus, if God moved on the hearts of the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple, if God had His watchful eye on the work of the rebuilding, if God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to prophesy to the rebuilders, if God did all of that, then what purpose did God have in sending this one man whose name was Ezra to Jerusalem at this particular time and point in history? Well, I think the answer is very obvious. It was because the people who were living at that point and that time needed the guidance of God's Word. And as we rebuild our broken worlds, we need the same thing. You don't need somebody up here on Sunday mornings telling you you're okay the way you are. I'd love to tell you that, but I can't do it. And you don't need to hear it. Your life must be changed. And the only way it can be changed is the right way, and that is by the Word of God Himself. Now, i got some more questions for you. Do we feed the hungry? Talking about Kavanaugh Church, do we feed the hungry? You better believe we do. Uh, in the morning, we're going to go downtown and feed the homeless. We'll, we'll feed about 200 homeless people, and we need your help in that. But you know what? Weekly, we feed hungry people with our food bank. Happens every Monday about 1.30, but people start showing up about 7.30. <laughs> it really is amazing. You drive by the church at any time on Monday morning, and there are going to be people lined up all the way through the parking lot just waiting to get in to to receive some food because they need to be fed. Do we feed the hungry? Yes, we do. Do we help the hurting? Do we bring relief in disasters? Come on, folks, this is real easy. The answer to all of these is yes. Do we as a church give a cup of cold water? Do we help out needy and, 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 and children who need help at, at school during Christmas time. I believe we do. I could go on and on and on, but my point is this. You know what? We do all that, but other organizations can do those things as well. Yet no other organization in the River Valley has the task that the Church of Jesus Christ does. And that is to proclaim the truth of God's Word and the gospel that Jesus saves. 
because ultimately this is the only power that can change a person's life. It's the Word of God. Now I want to remind you of what this passage says two times about this man named Ezra. Verse 6, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 9, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. What an amazing thing to say about a man or a woman. Isn't it? Really think about that. That the hand of God was on that particular person. And why was the hand of God on Ezra? Well, obviously there was something about Ezra's life that positioned him to be blessed by God and used by God. What was it? Verse 10 tells us, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So here's what Ezra did. He devoted himself to the Word of God. That is, he set his heart. He made up his mind. He focused his attention on. And he purposed in his heart that he was going to do something. Today I'm praying that God would take the Word of God and the Spirit of God and spark something inside of you that will cause you to focus your attention like never before on living your life by the book. And that is by the Word of God. Now, how many of you have a pair of keys either in your pocket or your purse? You got keys? Okay, don't rattle them. Okay, don't be rattling them. But you know what a key is, don't you? What, what's a key used for? The, the questions I ask you are very simple questions, and I know you know the answer. Why do we use a key? To unlock something, all right? And I find in chapter 7 three keys that we can use to unlock the door to receive the blessing, the power, and even the favor of God Almighty. So very quickly, let's look at these three keys. Three keys that will open the door into the blessing, power, and favor of God in your life. Key number one, we need to learn the Word. This Word. The Word of God. Verse 10 says, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study of the law of the Lord. The word study there means an energetic effort to find God's truth revealed in God's law. It means to seek, to search, to investigate. It's more than just a casual reading of the Word of God. It, it's more intense than that. You, you study it. You, you, you meditate on it. You do everything you can to understand the Word of God. This was the passion of Brother Ezra, the Word of God. In fact, it says in verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a teacher. New King James uses the word a skilled scribe well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So when it tells us that Ezra was a teacher or a skilled scribe, it means that he was a scholar in the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. It includes all the commandments that God wanted His people to follow as the unique people of God. It was basically the Bible of the Old Testament. And this man, Ezra, was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. That means that he knew the Word of God backwards and forwards. And the Bible here tells us that one of the reasons that God's hand was on Ezra 
was that Ezra's heart was on the Word of God. Got some more questions for you. When you think about how you spend your waking, non-working hours each week, where is the Word of God in your schedule? In other words, how much time do you spend reading the newspaper or surfing the web? How much time do you spend on social media? How much time do you spend watching television or sports or videos? How much of your time do you use playing video games? How much time do you spend in a week reading secular books or magazines? Now, I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily wrong because God allows us to enjoy things in our life, including these things that I've mentioned. But my question is, where in all of this is the Word of God in your life? How much time in comparison do you spend in reading and studying your Bible? How much time do you spend in comparison praying? How does that compare to the time that you spend in other things? You know, not to belabor the point here, but some of you in this room know the passing percentage of your favorite NFL or college quarterback but you don't know where to find the fruit of the Spirit or the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount in your Bible. Some of you spend hours a day connecting with other people on Facebook or Twitter and only a few minutes at most connecting with God in His Word. Now guys, I'm not trying to put you down or make you feel bad. My real question is, What's the deal? I mean, let's be real. What is the deal? Why? 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 I've said this before and it's so true. This is our instruction manual for life. Angie recently uh, got a new vehicle and uh, it's amazing the technology that are in just basic vehicles that they sell today. Isn't it crazy? I mean, this thing will do everything, including talk to you, you know? And and the instruction manual is about that thick for this new vehicle. And, and you know, it, it, it's beyond the point of, of just being able to get in there and figure things out. You've got to read about them to figure them out. At least I do. point I'm making is this. Life is difficult. Life is tough. You know, they say parenting is difficult. Too bad it doesn't come with an instruction manual. It does. Hey, it does. You say life is tough. It's too bad it doesn't come with an instruction manual. It does. The answer to all the problems that we have is right here, guys. I thought I'd get at least 17 amens. I only counted 12. And if our lives are a mess, which some of them are, it only makes sense that we spend a little bit of time in the book learning 
how to straighten them out. That's the first key. You learn the Word. The second key is you live the Word. Look at verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. And I love this little phrase, to do it. It's one thing to learn the Word. It's another thing to live the Word. And it takes both. This is what James had in mind when he wrote James chapter 1. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man. Take note of that, a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in whatever he does. So the Word of God is like a mirror. As we read it, it reads us. It reflects the condition of our hearts, our souls, and even our minds. Now someone has joked that that James said this person who reads this and forgets what he's seen is like a man. Because a woman wouldn't do that. Okay? Now hang with me here. Guys, suppose you're getting ready for work in the morning and you cut yourself shaving. Have you ever done that? The interaction today is horrible. Come on. Guys, have you ever done that? You're bleeding right here on your chin because you've, you've nicked yourself. And so you reach over and get a little piece of, piece of tissue and you, you stick it right there and it just kind of clings to your chin. You know what? I'm, ladies, you have no idea what we're talking about, but it happens to us. And so we do that. It's absorbing the, the blood that's just gushing from our chin. And, and so we continue to get ready. And right before we leave the bathroom, we look in the mirror again and we see that little tissue that's stuck there that's now crimson red. But then we get distracted, we forget about it, and we go off to work. And when we walk in work, we, we're, you know, why is everybody looking at me and laughing and pointing at me? And then it occurs to you, you saw it in the mirror, but you walked away forgetting what you look like. And now you're embarrassed. Ladies, you would never do anything like that, would you? I hope you don't cut yourself shaving your... <laughs> Anyway, I need to stick to my notes, don't I? So what James is saying, don't, don't merely just listen to the Word and then walk away forgetting what it says. Do what it says. Do what it says. So we need to learn the Word. We need to live the Word. But then the third key is we need to share the Word. Verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach both the statutes and ordinances in Israel. The word ordinances there means a general principle of God's Word. The word statutes are specific practices. And these things are to be shared. They're, they are to be taught. And they are to be taught to us by pastors and preachers and Bible study teachers. We are to teach these things to preschoolers and we worship kids and children and students and adults. That's what should happen in the church. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this is just for holy men and women who are preachers and missionaries. 
Because Colossians 3.16, Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you, church members, the body of Christ, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So, here's the deal. We need to teach and admonish one another with the wisdom of God's Word. We need to teach and admonish our kids and our grandkids the Word of God. Listen to me, church. One of the greatest things you could give your children the priority of what we must give our children is the Word of God. We are to talk to them about the Lord of the Word and the Word of the Lord. We need to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ with them. We need to treasure Jesus and His teachings in our home. Because if we don't, who's going to? Let me change tracks right here and say this to you, not again to make you feel bad, but just as a point of emphasis. Some of you, a lot of you, have been going to church for a long time. And what you've been doing is just sitting there in your pews, soaking everything up like a sponge. You have sat through years of church and Bible study. You've sat through hundreds, if not thousands, of Sunday school lessons. You have sat through hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons. And you've soaked it all up. Consciously or unconsciously, you soaked it up. You know what happens if you just sit there and soak? You will soon sour. So the real question I have for you today is this. Are you taking what you're learning and sharing it? Because there are people who hear, need to hear the good news. And God has chosen you to share it with them. Hebrews 5.12 gives us this warning. It says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. And not just teach you, but you need to be taught the elementary truths of Christ all over again. The point that the writer is making is this. You need, it's time to grow up. You've been sitting there soaking long enough. You're starting to sour. You need to be teachers yourself. So here's the thing. It's time to take it to the next step in your life. It's time to cross that continental divide and go up to the next level where we learn it, we live it, and then we share it. I'll go back to where I started because I'm almost finished. There's your chance, and you missed it again. Some of us are living a messed up life. Some of us have created that mess ourselves. We've made some bad decisions, some poor choices. We're paying for it. Others of you are living a messed up life through no choosing of your own. Just kind of been pushed on you, but you're there. 
Some of you live in a house where the home is messed up. Or you're in relationships that are messed up. Would you believe me when I tell you today there, there is a tool that can fix your messed up life. There is a tool that can rebuild your broken world. It's this right here. This can change your life. So this morning, will you make a commitment to learn it? And to start living it? To stop thinking you know all the answers and you can do it on your own. Because you can't. Take somebody bigger than you. And he'll do it through his word. Some of you are here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior and Lord. He wants to change your life and radically transform you today. And He will do that through your simple faith. So I invite you to come and receive Christ as your Savior. If you're here today and you're a Christian but you're away from God and you're just dealing with life and you realize you can't do it anymore by yourself, come today and let Him bring healing to your broken world. Then the second half of this invitation is for those of us who, you know, I mean, you've, you've gone through the, the trial, you've been through the valley, you've made it through the mess, and now things are back on track. Hallelujah! <laughs> things are pretty good right now. Do you realize that God allowed you to go through whatever you went through so that you can then help somebody else who's going through the same thing? That's the truth, isn't it, buddy? You know that. You live it every day. Would you realize that God has given you all that He's given you so that you can share it? And right then when I said that, you you knew who God was directing you to, didn't you? There's somebody in your life. Maybe they live in your own home. Maybe you work with them, go to school with them. But there's someone whose life is a mess and they desperately need guidance. Oh, Brother Will, I just don't know if I can do it. I don't, I don't have a seminary degree. You know, you don't need a seminary degree. You just need the Holy Spirit in your life and the Word of God in your heart. You've got all you need. So would you come this morning and pray for that person? Intercede for them. Because if you don't, who will? Heavenly Father, I pray that right now as your Spirit totally consumes this place and our lives, you would make it easy for those who need to come and pray to do so. Lord, I do believe there's someone here today that needs salvation. Would they, would they come and be saved? Lord, there's some believers who have strayed from you and they need to come back home. Would you help them make that journey? And Lord, for the rest of us who just uh, have a burden on our heart for that wayward child or parent,